Welcome to Authority Issues, a podcast about leadership, management, and which edition of D&D is the best one. I'm Rachel Perkins, aka Pi or Pi Bob. I'm into words, operations, cheese, and whiskey, and of course, leadership. And I'm Kendall Miller. I'm into the two prescription glasses that don't break when they fall <laughs> off my face getting dressed in the morning. Mm. I'm uh, currently wearing backup pair, which is why I look like a moron. Today on the show, we're talking with Mitchell Hashimoto, founder and CTO of HashiCorp. Hi, Mitchell. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. We are going to dive right in. And typically, when we get started, we ask folks, uh, tell us about your path to leadership, uh, to management, to where you are now, which is, you know, a pretty impressive spot, got to say. Uh, yeah. So where'd you get started? What was it like? Thanks. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think my path to leadership was... Uh, uh, coincidental kind of you stumble onto it that sort of thing i i got started just with my passion for software engineering and building things uh, and it sort of led from there all right well, can you say a little yeah, more about course. um other earlier management or leadership roles you've had and was, was your first job hashicorp <laughs> yeah. did you did you get Arby's. I mean, give us some, give us some nitty gritty. Well, okay. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know how much detail you wanted me to go into. Um, no, I didn't get into management until HashiCorp, I think. Um, I guess you might say otherwise, but my first, I mean, I went through normal jobs like as a, as a kid, I mean, tutoring and, you know, smoothie places and things like that. But my first real job, I think would have <laughs> been, uh, uh, I worked at an Apple retail store. Um, which doesn't sound like a real job in and of itself, but it was the first job I had that taught me a lot uh, from a leadership perspective. Um, and and Ooh, I don't say more about that. Yeah, so they they did a really good job, and I blogged about it since then. And, and honestly, a lot of the way we sort of act and behave and and teach our employees at HashiCorp was molded off of my experience at the Apple retail store. Um, they really teach everyone to. Uh, how to interact with people and how to, you know, be empathetic and how to be kind and how to understand that, you know, I think one of the first things they taught me that was really, really useful was that, you know, people are angry for a reason. And it's not like, you know, the things they said was like 99% of people when they are negative or angry, it's their reason. There's 1% of people that are maybe just like bad, evil type of people, maybe. Um, They they sort of left that (laughs) open. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, like the, the examples they gave really resonated with me. It made me like change my viewpoint on how to react to conflict and things like that, which I think as a, as a leader, you get a lot of that. Um, and you know, the, example, yeah. the example they gave was like, if someone walks in the store and is cussing at you and telling you how crap, you know, all, all the stuff you sold them is like, if you dig into why you very often find things like, you know, their hard drive lost all their only copies of their wedding photos. And it's like, things like that are very real, okay reasons to be angry. Uh, and so they taught us, you know, how to not respond back with anger and try to sort of dig out that understanding so you could be genuinely empathetic. You, like they, they made it really clear that you don't fake that you care, like find out why you should care about this person. And, and you spend time doing that. They, like, they give you a step of how to sell things basically. And the first two steps are like all about, you don't even talk about Apple products. You're just trying to understand that the person. And I think as I became a leader, that, that really molded my thinking. Yeah, and going, going back to the, 
the thing you said about, you know, you, there's, they've got a reason, they've got something to share with you about, you know, why they're angry. It, it reminds me of uh, when I first had to call, I, I used to do tech writing and I still do it to some degree, um, but I had to, first had to call a customer who was complaining about the documentation. And I was like, why, why do I need to, they're just going to yell at me. Mm-hmm. And there's really, you know, when you, when you reach out and make that connection, typically they have a reason, they have something to share with you that you're going to benefit from, that you're going to be able to use in the documentation to make it better. That kind yeah. of thing, you, know, you have to just overcome that. And then like, sometimes they're just blowing off steam. Mm-hmm. And they, they, then at the very least, you're developing a trust relationship with them. Yeah. So that's kind of the way that you kind of get on their wavelength so that you can help them or at least empathize with them so that they don't hate your product anymore. <laughs> yeah. And I think as, you know, when, when you have a customer, you know, relationship, you can't really teach them. I mean, you can't really talk to them beforehand. I think it's a lot different when you have an employee-employer relationship because mm-hmm. you could also educate sort of the other side of the coin, which is, that, you know, understand that your anger, you know, hurts people. Like it, it causes negative reactions and the other person, you know, if they're trained in this way is trying really, really hard to suppress those and be helpful and things like that. But the natural reaction, obviously, when, when you're being attacked in any sort of way, verbal or whatever, is to be defensive. And so if, mm-hmm. you know, we, we always, at, at HashiCorp, we have like an internal review process for, for anything in the company. Like if you're proposing a new team or you're proposing a feature or something, we have an internal review process and in our documentation for how to do that, we actually have a whole, we have a whole guide for um, being the submitter too, which is sort of like, you know, understand that, uh, that, you know, if you put the wrong tone into things that the other person might behave defensively. And so both sides of the coin are trained in this way. And I think that that really helps make a much more productive, actionable, pleasant experience. I feel like, I feel like this is a bigger deal than, yeah. I mean, so few leaders lead with empathy and that even before you were in a leadership spot, you were actually being trained in empathy. And it's not like, like you can't actually train people to be empathetic, but you can train people apparently how to find a reason to be empathetic. Right. I just, I find that really interesting. That's a pretty profound. Yeah. I think that, uh, I think that's the right way to think of it. I mean, I've met people that I've just been generally blown away by, by how naturally just kind they are. And I don't think everyone's that way. And so I think the way you said it's right. You could train people to be empathetic in a way. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Like I think you just, it, it's just teaching people how to, how to sort of understand uh, that, you know, if they, if they, listen to the other person and, and try to put themselves in those shoes that it's better for everybody. Yeah. To develop that instinct and then mm-hmm. strengthen it. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So, and then we, we ended up kind of cutting you off, but so you started at Apple and then where, where'd you go after Apple retail? Yeah, after Favorite smoothie recipe. <laughs> I did that before. I actually, yeah, I worked at a very popular smoothie place and I used to know the recipes, <laughs> but no, no, that was before. Uh, <laughs> as I'm drinking a smoothie right now. <laughs> Are you really? I am, yeah. Oh my gosh, that, that makes everything okay, better. Sponsored by. Yeah, um, no, so after the <laughs> Apple store, I, uh, I actually got my first programming job uh, where I was just a developer uh, at a consultancy. Um, just this, you know, normal, I don't know what you, that we didn't have official titles, but it would basically be the equivalent of like software engineer level one uh, at, a, at a development consultancy. Uh, and that was really interesting because I sort of took everything I learned at Apple about 
human relationship and it became really valuable because consultants of course work very closely uh, with their clients um, and even as a junior developer where I wasn't really supposed to directly interact with any of the clients um, that often at least uh, it was that's where that started to mold and so simultaneously to this though like literally at the exact same time I released my first open source project that became sort of popular. I had a lot of failures before that, but the first one that became sort of popular, which is called Vagrant. Um, and that at the same time was pushing me in a lot of community building, non-technical things. I've always been someone who, you know, just like to build things. And when you're in isolation, when you're alone, when you're just on your computer, that is 99% of what you're doing is you're just building things. And suddenly when you have both this, client interaction in a professional level and then the community interaction on the open source level, uh, I was being pulled in a lot of non-technical ways and having to learn really quickly. And the only experience I had to lean on was the Apple store. And I think that's, that's how some of that started happening. All hail the Apple store. Then. Wow. <laughs> so you wrote Vagrant while, uh, while working for the software consultancy Yes, and 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 then open source that and that kind of is that what sort of shipped you off into open source building things world? Yeah, yeah. So I yeah, Vagrant was sort of my nights and weekends project for a little while. Um, but I I always loved open source. I I liked the idea of it. I mean, there's a lot of reasons I loved it, but I mean, I think one of the more personal reasons to me was because I learned. That's how I I'm a self-taught originally. I mean, I eventually went to school for, for computer science, but originally self-taught programmer. And the only way I was able to do that was, uh, this is actually kind of crazy because I was limited at the time I could spend on the computer uh, by my family, which I think it makes sense. You don't want your kid spending all day every day on the computer. Uh, but the way I worked around that. Look at that back. <laughs> Sorry. The, the, way, the way I worked around that was I would actually find open source. I found out what open source was. I'd find it and I would print the source code. Um, so I would print it onto like 50 pages of paper <laughs> And when I walked to school, uh, I, I, would, I would walk with a group of friends, but I would just like hang out in the back and I would just like read the pages and I had no idea what was going on. And I remember I read like one program. I read the, the same like eight pages for probably like two months in a row. And I was just like, well, how does this work? Why does this do this? And then eventually it just clicked one day. Like I can't describe it any better. I just, I felt like one day I just got it. Um, and yeah, it's like open source was the only way I could do that. Right. I learned by reading source code. So that's the more personal aspect to it. Wow. That sounds like, I mean, a tremendous amount of patience as well, because if you had no way of uh, spending enough time to test and actually step through the code and figure out what, what was doing what, you're just reading it over and over. I'm just impressed <laughs> at the level of patience I, in a kid. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's evidence that I really loved it, I think, because I think, you know, as a kid, I had no reason to be patient about it. So. Sure, sure. Uh, so um, what has been, and, and you, you may have already touched on this a little bit with uh, with kindness and empathy sort of stuff, but what has been the hardest and or most embarrassing lesson you've had to learn to get to where you are? Ooh, that's, that's a tough question. I mean, I think in general, like learning, learning, managing people has been a tough lesson to learn. And, and I, but that, I, that's a really, I mean that in a really broad way. I mean, I, all the aspects mm -hmm. of, both like career path thing and just, you know, helping them through personal things by, you know, giving them time off. And, and then it's the basic thing, but like, you know, just all aspects of human management have been the hardest. Cause I think, I think a lot of founders believe that what happens when you 
start a company around something you love is that you get to spend all your time working on something you love. And mm, the sort of, yeah. this sort of sad reality is that by starting a company around something you love, you have chosen to dedicate all your time to, to enable others to work on what you love. And you are probably not working on what you love. Um, uh-huh. And so I think that was the hardest yeah. part. And you kind of got dumped. I mean, once, you know, once you kind of got up to, to, to founding HashiCorp, you were sort of dumped into this with, uh, as you said, you didn't really have much in the way of management experience before then. How, how did you learn there? What, what did you, did you explicitly purposefully take steps to, uh, to kind of level up in that area since you were obviously technically leveled up before you got there? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, how did you, how did you build up on what you had? I think you just have to use as many resources as you could, you could reach. And so for me, that was talking to people, it was reading books. Um, and, you know, I think, looking back at at maybe this isn't the right approach, but for me, all I could do is sort of take on a lot of blame and take on a lot of like, I don't know, burden on myself over like, you know, I I didn't know how to deal with stuff like this employee is underperforming or something like that. And so, you know, rather than look at that, and, and I'm not someone who would look at that as a disciplinary thing. It was like, how do you enable this person to do better? Uh, but I would, I would sort of, do some of the work myself, which is sort of a hero culture, which is negative. I, like that's not a good thing to do, but I didn't know better. And, and then as you grow, as the company grows, I think the benefit you get is you start hiring people with experience. You start hiring people that know how to do this. And they always say hire someone better than you. And, and that's almost always true if you could do it. And so we started hiring what I would call professional managers, but these could be technical people that are really good with people. These could be people with actually like a decade of management experience. And then they started teaching me a lot of how how to do things both formally and, and informally. Do you do you look back on that time feeling like you made every rookie mistake that there was to make? Or or do you feel like you managed to get by relatively uh, unscathed in those those early years? Definitely not unscathed. Um, I don't know if I also made I don't think I made every mistake, uh, but I I made a lot that I look back and I'm not, I'm not proud of or happy about. Um, I don't think, I don't think anyone was, or me even was like permanently damaged in any sort of way, but there's certainly situations I didn't handle correctly. Um, there's places where I, I think my, my biggest regrets. And then I talked to uh, Kendall before this and said, this was well, one of my biggest regrets is that uh, there was one junior engineer that joined HashiCorp that ended up leaving um, and without getting into the details, uh, I won't, but it, I don't, you know, I, that's one place where I really think that I blame myself for that person leaving. Like, I think that the, the inexperience in management that I had that early in the company, uh, didn't work out well, where if I was more, I think today, if that person joined today, then I think that person would have been very successful at our company. And I think person would have been very successful, you know, personally as a, or professionally on their own. Um, and that's the stuff that kind of, I look back and, and it hurts the most. That's oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, what is a leadership issue that you're dealing with or thinking about right now? So the hard part right now is, is for me, when you're, our company is just tipping over 300 employees and up to, I mean, up to a pretty staggering amount, up to like 150 or 200, even you could really duct tape over process and management issues by uh, just, you know, 
not doing it yourself so much as just like kind of forcing it through various ways um, and, or being present and just like jumping in and teaching someone yourself directly. Um, and at 300, we're just tipping over the point where we're hiring enough people every month and growing fast enough that me and the other people that have been at HashiCorp very long can't do that anymore. Like we need to have much clearer documentation and process in place so that people could figure it out on their own. And that's the biggest challenge because before it would sort of be like, this person needs help. Let's get someone who's super experienced and have them work directly with them over the next month. And, and that's becoming harder and harder. It's like, how do we, how do we actually enable that sort of ability in more and more people faster? Um, And that's, that's tricky. And I don't have the answer. Like that's what's happening right now. Yeah. Scaling your, your org infrastructure as well as your, you know, technical infrastructure. Um, is, is is just as hard, if not harder, because there's so much more variability within your people infrastructure, right? Yeah. Like you, you can write down as many policies and processes as you want, and they're always helpful. As a as a documenter of things, I'm super into that. But you you still need the humanity behind it, and that's the hardest thing to scale, right? The the deal individual. Yeah, and I think that you know it's it. People are just so complex and and it's beautiful but it's they're so complex and you know i think engineers and and technical as a technical person myself i like to believe that computers are complex but they're really not (laughs) they really do exactly what you tell them to do and they make exactly the mistakes that you code into them and uh people though you know every every person's different and you know that's just not true for technology Beautiful, complex, and frustrating as hell because you just don't always know the answer. Yeah. Totally. Well, so, I mean, I want to ask along those lines with, with regards to people and their messiness, uh, who's, I'm sure there's a number of people that you've hired that you've been, you know, shocked at the things that they've done positively for the company mm-hmm. or, or, hey, wow, this person really filled a hole that we would have never, you know, known to fill or uh, this person built a process that has changed everything. I mean, can you just give us one story? Like who's one person and, you know, if you don't want to talk about them by name, that's fine. But what's one person that you hired that you feel like really leveled up the company in a way that kind of surprised you? Like we had no idea we needed this or, mm-hmm. uh, or they did this so much better than we thought we could. Or, and or what is that thing that they did? Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, there's two ways I would answer this. There's, there's some people you hire with a ton of experience that bring just stuff. You both expected them to come into the company and teach you stuff, but you're blown away with how much they actually teach you. Um, and I, I would say that's true in general for um, some of our upper, you know, management or executive leadership that we've brought in. But I think the more interesting part is when you hire somebody and they become just they grow into something like so much more talented than you ever could imagine. Um, and I won't name this individual both because it could be like embarrassing, uh, but also they, they haven't told me it's okay. Uh, but yeah, we hired one of our first, I would say like, you know, 20 employees that we hired. It was just like a standard engineering role, um, basic engineering. And since then that person has grown into a very sort of high level management track individual that has become a cultural champion within the company. And uh, this person's super capable of just coding. Like if we just wanted this person to just code all day, uh, they could do that. But they've really like, I, I sort of look at, look to them as, as showing, showing us like the importance of, of, I don't know, bringing, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, 
I'm a all business kind of person in a way. Like I'm not, I'm not the fun guy usually. Right. And I think this person, <laughs> this person really showed like the, how the culture could be exactly what you want it to be, but also like grow and become healthier by introducing this fun aspect, which is particularly important because we're a remote company. And so you don't get the office banter and the office sort of body language. And since we're remote, like having these quirky little like Slack questions or things like that, like really up the, the um, culture. And I'll give you an example. Like there's, we, we use this thing called GeekBot to do asynchronous status updates using Slack. So what everyone's working on and things like that, but they just talk to a bot in Slack and it records it and anyone could look at it at any time. And one of the questions that the Slack bot asked me today or asked me yesterday is like, you know, I came back, it's Monday. And the first thing I open up Slack and I see the question, you know, would you rather fight a horse sized duck or a hundred duck sized horses? <laughs> and I don't make those questions. Yes. And what was the answer? <laughs> I, I, I think I just responded with an expletive. I was like, oh, you know, F. <laughs> <Either way. laughs> but, you know, the fact, the fact that you could go look and see what everybody in the company answered to that ridiculous question uh, is, you know, you can laugh about it and, and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a good thing for a Monday morning. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, we're not trying to build, there, there's a certain level of like, let's be serious. Let's get our job done. Let's be professional, but also, you know, we could have fun doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's good to have, uh, you know, have someone who knows the right level of that too. Right. Like I, you know, it did, there's, there's the, the person who's like just making jokes all the time and you wonder, huh, do they ever have a, a serious thought? And this let's be nice, Rachel. Like that. Let's be nice, but, Rachel. Yeah, yeah, Kendall, you're you're <laughs> hilarious, man. Totally hilarious all the time. <laughs> that, that was low right there. Um, I, this is a question I ask, and I'm I I used to think that I was right about this all the time, but I it turns out I'm about fifty fifty with my guests. Um, are you an introvert or an extrovert? Ah. and how does it affect your work? Yes, yeah, so I've done a lot of those various personality tests that test this. Uh, and, and every single one, I'm a very, very strong introvert. Um, so, and I feel that, and I believe that for sure. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. Does, how do you, how do you compensate for that? Or how do you make, how do you adjust your style and make that work for you? So I think we had some, we had some executive coaching come along a few years ago, and this was a really interesting thing because they talked about this. They, you know, it's very common actually for tech companies and, and I don't mean to stereotype or anything, but they just use the numbers. They've been executive coaching for hundreds of companies over the past decade. And they have like the raw stats of, of these tests. And it's like something like the executive leadership of tech companies, less than like 200 employees is 90 plus percent introvert leadership. Whoa. Yeah, it was something like that. I don't have the exact numbers, but it was, it, it had that response. Everyone was like, whoa. Um, and so a lot of the importance of how to be a successful executive and how to be a successful leader was how do you lead and understand extroversion. And the stuff I didn't, you know, that they taught was actually going back to this empathy thing, but I never thought about empathy in terms of introversion, extroversion. And the way they taught it was that, you know, we built, we, we recognized that a lot of our internal processes were built around introversion. It was built around like, I'll use this review process example. It's, it's a big part of our company, but it was built around the idea of go hide in a corner, think through the problem, write out what you think is the solution, and then go propose it to people. And for an introvert, that's 
That's very often what you want to do as an extrovert. That's a draining negative process. That's what an extrovert again, stereotyping here, but as an example, um, what they want to do is go into a room and talk with people through the problem and have a collaborative experience. Um, but again, for an introvert, that's awful. They don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. As a screaming extrovert, I can confirm that that is definitely how I would want to process that. And sit in the corner and thinking about it sounds terrifying to me. Yeah, so we learned, we adapted our process to change the way we talked about uh, this, which is that we still expect a single document to be shared asynchronously with the company or the proposal, but we made it really clear that the document is the artifact and not the process. We're like, this is what you should produce. But if you want to get in a room and talk to people, if you want to sit outside and just have a cup of coffee by yourself and write it down, like do what you have to do. But the final produced thing is this, this art of this document. And that helped some teams and some teams were predominantly extroverts and that helped them. They do things differently. They do hop on the whiteboard and do things that way. And a lot of our engineering teams, which again, sort of biased towards introversion, still do the sit quietly for a couple of days and just produce this document. And it does, it, it's all good. Yeah, yeah, that's like outcome based. That's cool versus you well, know the process. Sorry, Kevin, yeah, go ahead. Well, no, it's okay. It's okay, Rachel. I'll just keep interrupting you. Um, works out for everyone. <laughs> no, so, uh, so I have a question about this, particularly as it relates to you and a distributed team. So, you know, as I mentioned, I'm extremely extroverted, and I do find, you know, um, I'm in calls all day long. I'm sitting on Zoom talking to people and Slack, whatever, and it doesn't meet the same. Uh, people need that I have. And so I I go a little bit stir crazy being at home talking to people on the phone all day. And I'm curious as an introvert in a large distributed company, does it have the opposite effect? Does being on zoom calls not drain you in the same way that being in a big crowd with people normally would like, do you actually have more energy to talk to people all day long in because it's via video chat or does it not, uh, you know, is that not a one-to-one comparison I can make? Yes, this will be my personal opinion. I haven't asked others about this. So for me personally, I think the actual Zoom process itself is still very socially sort of energy draining. However, since you are working from home, the fact that the moment you're off the Zoom, you can immediately start recharging. There's no people around you. So like the, I could mm-hmm. I, I sure. could exit the Zoom, have another meeting in 15 minutes. And for those 15 minutes, just be to myself and go do whatever I need to do. And I think that makes it so... I have more, I guess, stamina with regards to meetings. I could have a full day of meetings as long as I have these right breaks in between. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. In fact, I was I was interviewed for this podcast this last time, and I talked about that very thing where it's super uh, draining just to have to be present to present yourself to people all day every day, especially in an open plan office. I mean, I'm so used to those at this point, but. But yeah, that really resonates with me where you you just need a few minutes to be by yourself, to not have to worry about what anyone else is thinking in that moment. It's yeah. super helpful. It's yeah, totally. So um, what 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 is your relationship with authority? Because this is this podcast is called Authority Issues. Uh, how do you how do you feel about having authority over other people? And also, um, how do you feel about other people having authority over you? Um. So authority over other people is, is a, is a power I've had to learn to be responsible with, I guess it's, uh, you know, I've learned it, it, I guess to me, the the direct answer I'd give you is it's, it's scary. It's stressful. Um, I don't love it. Um, but I understand why it's important. Like it's important to 
to get, you know, enable others. And like I said, you're training others in the company to work on what you love to do sort of in the way you love to do it. And so that requires some level of authority. Um, the, the downsides of that was I learned really early on. Um, I emailed, this was maybe to get back to Kendall's question, like uh, 30 minutes ago, was like, what mistakes did you make? And this is one of the worst ones. Um, and so simple was I emailed somebody on like a Friday a really casual email. didn't mean anything by it. Um, just had some thoughts in my head and I was like, Hey, could I grab, you know, an hour of your time Monday morning? Just want to talk through some things. And that was it. Left it left for the weekend and look at my email. And, oh, yeah. and you know, that person <laughs> for sure thought they were being fired and something terrible happened. And I truly a hundred percent just meant, I just have some interesting stuff. I want to, you know, just talk. <laughs> yeah, I want time on your calendar on Monday. Yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, and, first thing, and I don't be late. I found out because that person ended up calling my co-founder on Sunday, crying, um, being like, "I've been thinking about this. I don't know what I did. I'm like, I'm so scared to talk to Mitchell." And then my co-founder called me, and I was like, "What? Like, what? What is? What's happening?" And uh, and you know, that was a hard lesson, right? Like, I I hurt somebody totally inadvertently, um, and it was only because of this authority. Yeah, Which, yeah. I, I mean, I get it the other way though, still Mitchell, like if, a, if an employee comes to me and says, Kendall, can you talk tomorrow at 2 p.m.? Yes. I panic too. I'm like, oh my gosh, I wonder what I did. And like, are, are they going to rage? Quitting? Yeah. I think that's healthy ways, though, but, because I think that shows that your company, like if, if you feel that same way about, I guess someone like, below you. I mean that literally on the org chart, like someone below you, if, if someone could have that effect on you, I think that shows a healthy level of empathy and like culture in the company that they have the power to do that to you. Because I, oh, in a lot of ways it could be one way. And I think uh, I get the opportunity to go to a lot of companies around the world and there's certain regions of the world where it's very one way, right? Like you, it's, you know, you know, your boss says jump, you say how high and you, you know, you, your boss says something one plus one equals three, something factually wrong. And you as a subordinate just says, yes, right? Like there's cultures like that where there is no power. Um, And I think that this authority inversion is really healthy and it's not an inversion. It's just a equivalence, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And then the second half of that question is like, how have you felt about people having authority over you? Do you, I mean, when you were younger, when, you know, when your parents had authority (laughs) over you, when or you know still do maybe uh whether you um you know whether you feel weird about that or whether that's something you're comfortable with um well and i want to i want to tack on to that question well actually answer first and then i'll tack on to that question sure i mean i i think it's changed over time right i mean i think uh, i went through the teenage years where i was like you know screw authority and angry at anyone who told me what to do um uh, but as today i mean i guess that it authority in some ways is comforting i mean knowing that there's someone else thinking through something and feeling like this is what you should be working on and giving you that guidance is really comforting in a sense. Um, and then at the same time, uh, you know, sometimes it can feel restricting, but I, I think it, it it's having this healthy inversion is the right way to do it. Because if someone tells you, someone with authority tells you something that you disagree with, having the power to say you disagree with it um, is important. And that doesn't mean you don't do it. Like maybe you disagree and the person says, yeah, but like you kind of have to for these reasons, but like the reasons are what I want to know. Right. And so it's when there's authority in that sense, I think it's healthy. I think the the place where authority gets really frustrating is when it's, when it's used unfairly. Um, And that's, 
I try really hard not to do that myself. Um, and I, I think the way it happens to someone like me, I guess, in a founder executive position, there's not many people, I guess, uh, again, on an org chart with authority above me. Uh, but the way it happens is employees can can sort of pull, you know, this doesn't happen very much at HashiCorp, but I've seen it happen where uh, employees could sort of pull like power moves that there's nothing you could really do about it, which is sort of just like, you know, I'm not doing that because I could get a job somewhere else that pays me twice as much. And it's just not fair to say that because to me, it's like you could, so either just do it or like, let's have a normal conversation or it's non-threatening. Cause like, and I think it has to be with how the authority figure delivers it too, but it's when, when, I don't know, I don't know the logical attacks or fallacies or any of that, but like, it just feels like an unfair sort of argument. And I really dislike it when unfair arguments from either side enter a discussion. So what I want to follow up with on this is, and I think one of the more fascinating and, and respectable things about you is that you were a founder of this company that grew this company and then decided to go hire a CEO to take over. And you stepped down and I mean, talk a little bit about, and you've shared some of this with me, but you know, for, for the sake of the listeners, um, but you know, what, what is it like to, to put somebody in authority over you? And I know you, you probably have a partnership kind of relationship, but um, you know, I just think that that's a really fascinating choice that I don't see a lot of people make. And so, you know, talk a little bit about that because that was a situation where you actually chose to give someone some, at least some authority over you. Yeah. Um, so I think Kashikor, I would hope, I mean, we've always viewed it as a lot of startups say we have no titles or things like that. There's a lot of negative things to having no titles. Um, so we, we definitely have titles. We definitely have hierarchy and things like that, but we view titles as a description of your responsibility and less of a description of who you were the boss of. I mean, I think that's an important way mm-hmm. to look at it. And so from the CEO yeah. aspect, you know, we, Armand and I, Armand is my co-founder, Armand and I decided we wanted a CEO, not because we definitely didn't want authority over us, but we didn't even view it that way. That wasn't even really a concern. It was more like a CEO has a set responsibilities of managing the financials of a, of a startup early on before you have like a CFO, um, thinking strategically as a business, not just technical strategically, but total strategically, building out executive team, training them, things like that, and more. And we looked at these responsibilities and most of them we didn't want to have. We, did, we didn't think we were good at them. Not just we didn't want to have them, we didn't want to have them, but we didn't think we were good at them. So we wanted to hire someone with expertise. And so it was more of a, if you look at the job responsibilities, filling those with, with experience and strength and intelligence was the goal. Uh, the reporting structure and bossiness was, is not a way we think of things. Uh, and I think, again, it's one of those, trying to build a company with a healthy, equal authority um, balance. And if you do that, then you certainly have bosses. You certainly have people that have ultimate authority, but you don't usually execute that ultimate authority. Instead, it's, this is my job description. This is what I do. This is your job description. This is what you do. This is how we work together. This is what I'm responsible for, like pertaining you. Um, And, and if you have that understanding throughout, I think it, uh, it, it becomes really healthy. So with our CEO, he definitely like on paper, uh, I, I sort of report. Yeah. I mean, I guess on paper I do report to him. Um, I, I say sort of, because I guess like he can't technically fire me because that requires board approval, but, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's authority up there and, and I'm very respectful of if, if Dave, Dave's our CEO, if Dave tells me, 
we really should be doing, or you should really be doing this instead of this, or I think this is a, you know, a good use of your time, which hasn't actually happened. But if he said that to me, I would listen. And I would listen in the sense that I think he's coming at this, not from a power complex, but he truly believes it. And he believes that's important for his job. And, and I would try to understand that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, and in the sense that you, you know, you didn't necessarily abdicate this responsibility, you, you made some choices based on your, your uh, experiences and your desires and in terms of what kinds of role you wanted to have. Yeah. Um, what would you say separates a junior leader from a senior one in terms of skills, abilities, or tendencies? <laughs> I think, I think a senior leader makes the people below them extremely successful. And I think a junior leader just tries to leverage sort of their own abilities, I guess. Like, I, I don't know how to word that properly. Like when you first, I think, I think when I see junior people first get promoted into leadership positions, they try to take what they were doing previously and sort of like 10 exit by using others. Um, whereas when you, a, a more senior experienced leader, um, I almost see them, they're not trying to enhance their own abilities so much as they're trying to enable others' abilities to make the whole thing successful. Um, it's a, it's kind of a, so they're not seeing their, sorry, they're not seeing their people as like parts of their giant robot suit. Right. They're, they're not, they're doing something else entirely. Yeah. They're not tools. Um, at least, I mean, everyone's a tool, <laughs> but they're not tools exclusively, <laughs> uh, but they're, you know, they're, yeah. If, if we could just pull that out as a, as a quote for this, uh, everyone's a tool. Mitchell. We're, we're all a tool for some end means. <laughs> yes. I'm a tool, of the I'm a man tool or for otherwise. my dog because I, my dog is You're the one who throws the yeah, ball. Yeah, I throw the ball. I feed the dog. <laughs> Probably pick up the poop, which, I mean, yes. is kind of the ultimate yes. demonstration of that. Oh, once again, we get to poop. Actually, I'm not sure that we've gotten to poop in this podcast before, but thanks. Thanks, Kendall. <laughs> All right. I have one so, job. Oh, go ahead, Kendall. <laughs> well, so then, I mean, well, first of all, were you done? I, I feel like yes, I interrupted yeah. you. Did you have more to say? No, I'm good. Okay. Um, how has becoming a leader affected your personal life and in positive ways and negative ways? Or, or maybe even something interesting to ask, how has running an increasingly successful organization affected your personal life? Hmm. Uh, well, there's a lot of ways the startup in general <laughs> affects your personal life, and they're not all good. Mm -hmm. Um, but from a leadership in particular perspective, I mean, I think that those same traits, uh, and I think this could go both ways and I think it matters how you approach leadership. But I think in my, my perspective, uh, the things I've learned at HashiCorp have really helped lead to a more positive personal life, um, more positive relationship with my fiance and my family and things like that, because I bring the same empathy. I bring the same sort of like uh, equal power type dynamic. I, my parents don't have ultimate authority, but I, authority over me. But I'm also not trying to be just the super. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I don't tell them what to do either, and I don't try to be that kind of kid. Uh, it's, it's. I, I think I try to bring that to everything. I think. Uh, my my fiance is an actress. She has good days. She has really bad days. I mean, acting is really up and down. And sometimes she gets mad at me because she recognizes I'm doing this. But I think it's I think it's for the better. But sometimes she comes home and she's really she's had a bad day. She's really upset. And I just sort of start talking to her and asking her questions. And she's like, she's like, don't do your like one on one thing with me. <laughs> <laughs> one on one bullshit yeah. with me, young man. She's, 
<laughs> you know, and, and I've had to learn too, like about that, but it's sort of like, you know, I'm trying to do the same thing. It's like, you know, what do you feel like? And like, what would you rather feel like? And how, how can I help get you there? And, you know, things like that. And it's like, she, she gets upset about that and I totally get it. And I got to back down, but it's, it's, it has the right intentions. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, help. And, and I think. Yeah. Maybe be a bit more smooth about it. Yeah. People are afraid to marry a psychologist because they're afraid (laughs) to be analyzed the whole time they're at home. But now it's like people should be afraid to marry managers or (laughs) to be in relationships with managers because I will manage you. Uh, I will one-on-one you to death. Where do you see yourself in this household in 10 years? (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. That is great. Look, you're you're doing really good as uh, you know the third person in this house, but I'd really like you to be second. How do you believe you can move up a, a, beyond really the dog? Cute. Because the dog is really. <laughs> oh, well, we know you have a dog. Um, what are, what are your hobbies outside of work? Uh, I'm I'm just your wife or your partner rather. Yeah, it, this is. I live in LA, and this is going to sound like the most LA thing ever, I guess. But I my. You sir. No, no, even even worse, I think. So, I something I'm even more embarrassed by. I think what I love to do in the free time I have is really just to like fitness related activities. Uh, uh-huh. It's and and this is something that's found really important is working remote. I I block an hour of my calendar in the middle of the day so that I could ride my stationary bike that's in my house. Um, just as a maybe it's introvert related, maybe it's just, you know, I just need time off. Uh, but you know, stuff like that just that's how I feel, I feel good about myself and it's what I like to do in my free time. I also play a lot of video games, you know, there's only so much working out you could do and I'm not, I'm not super fit. Fit. What are you playing right now? What are you playing? Fit, right wait, now? fitness and video games. I just, I need to laugh at that for just a moment. Those what? two things. One <laughs> enables the other. See, better fitness. And I, I get it, now. but. Still... Um. Oh man. But no, the, the the idea of, you know, getting on the bike and, and pushing it for like an hour is it, it does it, it changes your brain chemistry. It's so definitely heard. important. Yeah. So when, I totally see that. Well, and then you have to answer what what, what are the video games you're playing these days? Uh, yes, all Fortnite all the time? I play all kinds. Uh, I, pl- I, I'm a really reluctant Fortnite player. Like I play it because my friends play it, but I think it's an awful game. Sorry, no offense to people out there. Uh, I uh, I play a lot of Hearthstone because it's a good game that you could you could play for ten minutes and be done. Like if I have twenty minutes between a meeting and I it's not enough to like dive into anything and I don't have any emails to answer or something, I'll just like I'll play a game of Hearthstone or something. Um, and then besides that, I've just been playing a lot of like indie Switch games. I love my Switch. Uh, I've just been picking up a lot of like fifteen dollar and less games and just playing all sorts of them. Awesome. Awesome. Um, and, uh, well, I think we're getting to the point where we need to wrap this up. Uh, super interesting. I don't, don't want to stop talking, but, uh, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, so I don't hide myself. Uh, I don't hide my email or anything. So if you look at Twitter or GitHub, you could find my email. Um, I've been really lucky that I don't get a lot of like, I don't know, I don't ignore emails cause usually the emails I get are worth, you know, responding to. Uh, so if you email me, I'll do my best to respond. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Kendall. You got yeah, any other questions? Thank you so much. No, I appreciate it, sir. This is this is helpful and amusing, and uh, we appreciate your time. Great. Thank you. Even so though much. you don't like Fortnite. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it could be my my own my own 
I'm really bad at it, so I could be just projecting that. <laughs> now the truth comes out. <laughs> I see. I see. It's a terrible uh, game because I'm bad at it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's classic. <laughs> well, thanks okay. very much. Yeah, thanks so much. <laughs>